Hello, and welcome to another episode of the 94 MBA podcast. Again, we have rebranded, new name, new website, just the 94. Um, new actual website will be coming soon, but just a new name for our, for our brand, The 94. Um, that happened last week, if you guys somehow missed that. Um, but if you're following us on social media, you definitely didn't miss it. Um, but we are back. Um, what, day, what day is it today? It is October 5th. Um, you all will be listening to this on October 6th. Um, but Corbin, how are you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing good, Eric. You know, I'm excited. Couple week and a half away before the season starts, it's gonna be it's gonna be something else. So uh, just gotta ride out and get ready for it. Yeah, I mean, we are really really close. Obviously, preseason is well underway. Um, we're not gonna talk about it right now. We're still continuing our division previews. We're actually gonna finish the Eastern Conference today by by doing the uh, previewing the Central Division, and then we'll go to the Pacific next episode to complete all of our. Uh, Division previews are our podcast training camp, like we like to call it here um, on the pod. So let's get let's just dive right into it with the Central Division. Obviously, starting with the Chicago Bulls, their offseason um, was was fairly eventful. Um, one of their biggest moves was drafting Wendell Carter Jr. in the first round. I think it was pick eight. Um, then at pick twenty two, I believe it was picking uh, Chandler Hutchinson. Um, and then in free agency, they signed Jabari Parker, two years, forty million, with a team option on the second year, and then they controversially matched on Zach Levine, um, that four-year, I think, $78 million offer sheet that came from the Kings, and the Bulls matched it pretty quick, quickly, even though everyone on Twitter was debating if they should or not. The Bulls decided really quickly. Um, last season, um, just to give a baseline of, of what team they were, they were 28th on offense and 27th on defense. Um, and interestingly enough, um, they had the point differential of a 23-win team, which which I like to use as more of a baseline when evaluating where they're coming from because they won 27 games last year, but you look at their point differential for 23 win team. And that kind of lets you know that they were pretty lucky in, in a lot of games last season. Um, and that's more of a, a fair evaluation of who they were in terms of their statistics as a team of being a 23 win team rather than 27. Um, but really the storylines, the key storylines is, is this team is, is all offense. Uh, I mean, you retain, you retain Zach Levine, uh, who's, notoriously bad defender at shooting guard uh, and kind of an explosive offensive player, still trying to figure out his, his best skill set and how to use it um, with the Bulls specifically. And then you add Jabari Parker to that mix, potentially actually very likely at small forward once Laurie Markkinen comes back, who was hurt for, I think, the next six weeks. Um, but you're looking at a starting lineup that has Levine, Parker, and Markkinen together, basically from shooting guard, small forward, and power forward. All those guys are, are not good defenders. There's a lot of offense there, but there's no defense. I mean, and they had a 27th ranked defense last year, so it's like, how far can they go down? Um, but they can have, I think that this team has the potential to have the worst defense in the league. Um, you know, they've got some solid defensive players like Chris Dunn. You know, Robin Lopez is a solid situational defender. Wendell Carter has defensive potential, but rookies are, you know, very rarely able to contribute to winning and, and on a consistent basis in the NBA. Um, you, you look at this roster, and just, there's just very few solid defenders on this team. Um, and they're going all in on offense. And this team, if they stay healthy, has the potential to be an above-average offense um, in the league. But again, they're relying on people. Levine and Parker have injuries. They're relying on a lot of young players. Wendell Carter Jr. has a very intriguing offensive skill set at the big position. But again, a rookie still going to be able to adapt. So, you know, my concern is with this team, obviously not really playoff worthy, um, though some people have started to talk about them as a potential playoff team. Um, they're, just, they're just not going to have any defense. Um, and, you know, you can win. You can try and win with all offense and no defense. But at some point, 
you know, you have to have at least like the 20th ranked defense instead of like the 30th ranked defense, which they have the potential to be this season. Oh yeah, it, it's it's gonna be ridiculous. Defensively, the Bulls are a train wreck. We I bring up their who I think is their best player at least for right now, um, with Larry Markin being out. But Zach Levine was just atrocious on the defensive end. I think last season he played 24 games, had a defensive real plus minus of minus 2.14. That was ranked him 59th among worst among guards. His real plus minus was minus 3.30, and that was good for 87th amongst. Um, this was point guards, and then 471st in the league. Now, he barely made an impact. Like, he barely played 24 games. Very small sample size. And he still showed in that time that he's one of the worst defensive players just in the NBA in general. In fact, going down this roster, I'm not even going to bring up how bad they are because he already kind of went over it. I'm just going to talk about their offense because <laughs> that's kind of the only way they're really going to win games. They have enough players, I think, that you have uh, Levine, you have Jabari Parker, Chris Dunn can shoot from mid-range. Bobby Portis is not afraid of shooting um, <laughs> on, on the floor and everywhere. I mean, he's, he's, he's packing. So they, they should have shot creation. I think they're going to have a lot, especially with the fact that Larry Markkinen and um, – and, um, oh, man, I'm just forgetting who I was saying. I was saying Larry Markkinen should be their future player, and then we don't know how Wendell Carter Jr. is going to adapt moving forward. But for the young front court guys, those two – they might have too much shot creation around them for them to really grow into their role offensively, but that that's for into the future. For right now, I think with Coach Fred Hoiberg there, you know, he's really nice with a fast pace and a fast shot offensive scheme. He likes a little bit more shooting than he's had in the past, but I think this Bulls team fields enough shooters that it should work. Their only their only hope to win some games is to get up and down the floor and get as many shots up as they can. Just forget defense. Um, maybe they could do what Robin Lopez done a couple times in Shaq and the Fool, where he doesn't even. Where as soon as the shot goes up, I, I know you've seen this. Yeah, of I know you guys listen to seen this too. He just runs back for whatever reason. I mean, now he has a true reason to do so though. So this is great. But um, that, that's that's all I can see. Getting shots up. They're gonna have enough players who can make a sufficient amount of shots, and the defense should be above. Their offense should be above average. That's the strengths. Yeah, I mean, and it, it they have an interesting they have an interesting collection of talent. I wouldn't say it's like good fit necessarily. Like Jabari Parker's like position at this point should be power forward just because of how the game has evolved and his injuries and his kind of lack of lateral movement and you don't want him guarding small forwards um, or more traditional wing players. But they do have a very interesting front court pairing when they do eventually move to Wendell Carter as the starter. Maybe they look to move Robin Lopez in a trade during the season. That's something I would be looking at if I was them. He's on an expiring contract, solid veteran. Um, big man that can provide something for a team that's on the fringe of the playoffs and maybe a, a lower playoff seeded team that looks to have some more, you know, interior presence. Um, and maybe they can get some kind of second round pick and, or a young player or something like that. And really this, this pairing of this future pairing of Markkinen and Wendell Carter Jr. is really interesting because both can space the floor. Obviously Markkinen is really known for his shooting, but Wendell Carter can get out to at least the deep mid range and, and occasionally, you know, especially corner threes should be a shot he can hit on a regular basis. And then you look at the playmaking aspect of Wendell Carter's game, which makes him extremely intriguing because this is a guy that you can give him the ball um, at the elbow and, and have him operate, have guys running off screens around him, um, just allow him to, uh, you know, kind of initiate the offense. He's obviously not going to be like a Nikola Jokic or anything like that, but a guy who could probably average, you know, three to three and a half assists per game um, when he finally gets the role and the usage and the responsibility, which is another, you know, additional wrinkle to the offense. Um, it still, you know, can be light on defense. Markkinen is, is okay. He tries a little bit. Wendell Carter has some kind of, you know, defensive potential in terms of protecting the rim and being able to switch. 
um, which is again a, a modern skill that big men need. Um, but how well, you know, how much is he going to have to make up for the defensive mistakes on the perimeter from Zach Levine and Jabari Parker? Um, oh my God. You know, that's the question. And these are all young players too, so it's not like you're asking a veteran to make up for the poor defense on the perimeter. You're asking a potential rookie, um, and then both Markinen as well, um, two young players in the front court to make up for the perimeter lapses on, on defense. Um, and just looking at Levine and Parker as like a combination, like they have to show that they can actually contribute to winning uh, because so far in their careers, they just haven't done that. You know, they've both been able to put up good numbers. They both obviously had flashy highlights, um, but you know, injuries and, and again, the defense are just major concerns for both moving forward and have also been what have held them back in recent seasons. Um, you know, I looked this up, both players have always had a negative net rating in their four seasons in the league. Um, and almost every single season, they've always made their team's defense worse when they were on the floor, which is kind of what you'd expect. But they've always had a negative net rating overall, which means their offensive impact is not outweighing their defensive limitations. Um, and, you know, moving forward, if you're looking at this, projecting this team, you know, in the future, Parker may only be on a one-year deal. Um, I mentioned that team option on the second year. If he doesn't perform, they just let him go into free agency. But if he does really perform well... It's going to be tough for them to pass on that team option. He's going to be on the, on the team for another year at $20 million. Um, but they're stuck with Zach Levine at four years, $78 million. I mean, unless he becomes an average defender and a much better offensive player, no one will, will, will trade for him. I, I mean, I, I know he's young, but at, at some point he's going to be, you know, you know, two years from now, I think he'll be like 26 and 27. He's past that kind of point where you're projecting him to improve. Um, you can make up for players that are bad defenders or, you know, just average defenders, but you've got to be elite offensively, and he just hasn't done that. Again, like I mentioned, he's always had a net, he's always had a negative net rating in his career, so a player who's clearly not contributing to winning, and same for Parker. So these guys have to finally start showing, and this is probably not the year they're going to do it, but they have to start showing development in terms of actually making plays towards winning and not towards highlights and good numbers. Oh, yeah. And I think with Chicago, they're really taking a long game. I think it's interesting with how weak or how weak that how weak many suspect the Eastern Conference will be that there's even talk about them making the playoffs because yeah. I'm sorry, they are just a walking dumpster fire on the defensive end. Just turnstiles, it, I mean, it, it's, it's going to be horrible. Shooting over them is like, remember that high school basketball practice where you would have to shoot over like a broom or shoot over <laughs> like a coach with like a hand in the mat? Like, that's what it's going to be like. Like, that's how little resistance. Get your shot up and over and you're good to go. But looking, you know, for the long term, I do like the young talent. Carter and Markinen are, are going to be a very good front court if they stick around. Um, if you do stick with Levine and don't move him, he is still very young and there are is some, not very young, he's still young and there is conceivably some untapped potential there, at least on the offensive end for him. With him and Dunn there, and Dunn is 25. Okay, so they, basically they have a youngish backcourt, <laughs> and that could be moved for assets if they contribute and play well. And they have a young front court that could really grow together and be pretty good. So I, I don't know. I think the one question that's going to be important to think of, and I don't know what storyline you have, but one I have is Fred Hoiberg. Can he develop and win? Can he do both? Because... Development is going to be a thing. It has to be with these young guys. And he's had other seasons where, you know, he hasn't had the best roster around him. Think of, you know, the great Bulls teams with uh, Rajon Rondo and Jimmy Butler and Dwayne Wade. <laughs> you know, just mismatched roster and obviously a front office that isn't exactly in step with what the coach wants as far as personnel is concerned. But there comes a time where he's going to have to prove his mettle. And I feel it's rather unfair because he hasn't had really the, the opportunity or a fair shot at it. But this is as close as he's going to get right now he has enough players who can shoot the long ball they are obviously all offense there is no defense in sight like can he develop these players and show promise significant promise in them while also saying hey we can win some games or at least be in some 
whether that's because they're a scrappy team that just can score, like a la, I don't know, 80s Denver Nuggets or something, or, or just a team where, you know, Wendell Carter Jr. shows more than, than we know. Because, I mean, defensively, he averaged over two blocks a game in about 30 minutes at Duke. I mean, he, he has some defensive potential. We'll see what marketing does. Like, there's a chance that there is some defensive juice to squeeze out of this team. Not much, but there is a bit. And whether Fred Hoiberg can really reach these players. Like, I don't really know, even know if he's a good coach. That's kind of where I'm at. Like, he, he has another personnel. I'm going to let you respond. But I, I don't know. Like, there's some schemes and some ideas where I've seen, like, okay, you know, he's a competent coach. But is he a good one? And, and it's hard. It's, it's just hard to say. I mean, he's been put in one of the worst positions, I think, of a coach entering the league over the past couple of years, especially his first two seasons. Um, you know, last year, it seems like they're finally kind of at least giving him some players to, to implement his system and also finally saying like, OK, we're not going to, you know, try as hard as possible to get to the A seed. Um, we have we brought in some young talent. Let's focus on developing them. Let's focus on playing your style of play. And maybe that can improve the players that we have make them better you know some systems obviously everyone mentions like Mike D'Antoni making everyone who comes to a Mike D'Antoni team you know does better in terms of their statistical output um maybe that's the case with Fred Hoiberg you know pushing the pace shooting three-pointers last season they were 10th in pace and 11th in three-pointers attempted um that could actually go up um and is one reason why a lot of people including Zach Lowe had them in I think Zach Lowe had the Bulls as like his sixth or seventh team on his league pass rankings article this past week. And there was good reason for it. I mean, a lot of offense is, is fun, especially at a fast pace with a lot of three-pointers. That's that's the way I like to watch basketball. Um, and it's going to be intriguing. And they're probably in my top ten of, of teams in, in league pass that I want to watch. But the winning is, is just not going to happen as much as you would probably want or like for them. Um, though rebuilding is kind of fine. I think they should be focused on the rebuild instead of winning. But, um, yeah, it's hard because – the record is not going to be good this year, but then again, you know, there are things I was just watching um, the open court coaches segment on NBA TV. And it was, I think it was Mike D'Antoni actually who brought it up, who said, you know, everyone in this league is like doing a good job or, you know, there are coaches that are doing a good job and their team wins 28 games. Well, you know, their talent says they should have won 24, which means he did a better job, but the record's still really bad. Um, Or, you know, this team only won 26 games, but you look at these three players and they really improved and, you know, they can show, you know, development or something like that. Like there are ways to analyze coaches that are not just wins and losses. And that's exactly what I'm looking for from Fred Hoiberg this year is some internal development, uh, maybe just getting more effort on the defensive end from Levine and Parker, maybe just actually getting a team, a young team to mold and implement and, and develop and put his system on this team and on this Bulls team. Um, and they, you know, play, they increase their amount of three-pointers attempted, they increase their pace, maybe they steal a couple games by just running teams out of the building offensively, which you can do in the NBA over the course of a regular season, so I don't think the record's going to be good, um, when we, you know, we'll get to the over-under, I mean, I'm picking their under on 30, um, so oh, the, their record's not going to be good, but there's still ways for Hoiberg to show his coaching chops and, and show some development and, and make his mark on these young players, I mean, hopefully, I don't, I don't know if he's going to be around for the next couple of years, so, you know, maybe he can, you know, put some imprints in these guys' brains of, of how they should play, getting more effort on defense, shooting more threes, eliminating long twos, stuff like that. Um, I think there are ways that, you know, again, I can't say he's a good coach. I can't say he's a bad coach. But this is the first year he actually has a chance to kind of mold this young core and, and play the way he wants to play. Exactly. And I think that's going to be one of the benchmarks or or a way. I mean, obviously, they're going to be a fun league pass team. I think you sold me on it because at first I was like, I'm not watching them. Like, of course, I'm going to watch them as an NBA fan and someone who, you know, kind of covers the thing. But at the same time, like, they're not going to be the team I want to watch. But having seen some of the personnel and, and having talked about it, 
they're going to be interesting to look at. I think that's going to be a key storyline, though, and one that will largely determine Hoiberg's future maybe this year as far as the benchmark of, okay, low expectations, but you have a, a promising roster with some, with some talent to kind of tap into and see what you can get out of it. You can mold this team into more of what you're looking for philosophy-wise. So, you know, they'll be a fun offensive team. Defensively, we're going to have so many fun clips. <laughs> it, it's going to be like, you know how we all jumped on James Harden? You know, oh, for the God. past, like, it'll let's say two team. years. It'll be a home team segment. Oh, yes. It's going to be funny. Like, I'm going to look, that, look at it with almost the same mystifying energy as you would when the NBA players do their activities in sync, like sit down or, <laughs> you know, how many times I'm going to see Chris Dunn beat, beat off of a switch, you know, speed, beat off of a pick and roll, or how many times is Levine not even going to try as his man just goes past him. And you could easily just swipe your hand out and swipe the ball off. It's, it, it's, it's going to be hilarious. I mean, I saw there was a clip on Twitter that, that made the rounds. I think it was yesterday or the Already. day before of Already. Jabari Parker missing a layup. And then Robin Lopez got back on defense faster than he did. Uh, oh, I saw that one to get his own to get to Jabari get, Parker's man, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> just I mean, I know it's preseason, but that is incredible. Oh, yeah. The fact that Robin already knows Robin's going to be working <laughs> overtime. His trade value is going to be through the roof. He's going to get himself on the buyout market by midseason. That's my promise. You watch. <laughs> All right. So I'm taking the under. I think that, you know, they had 27 wins last year, but they played again. Like I said, they, they had the point differential of a 23-win team. I think there are some injury concerns. It's obviously going to be a really bad defense. I think that they can catch some teams off guard with their offense and win like 27-ish games, but I'm, I'm comfortably taking the under. Yeah, I'm not even giving them that. They're going to get like 24 to 26, <laughs> one of those two, but they are getting the under from me. All right, let's move on. Whew, it's, a, it's a sad team, I think. The Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, they're off- Cleveland! <laughs> this is for you! It's not for them anymore. <laughs> the offseason was uh, noted by drafting Colin Sexton. Um, they sh- signed Shannon Fry. They retained Rodney Hood. And um, I think they I think they lost a player. Um, I can't remember. I think they lost somebody. I think he was pretty important. Uh, Rich Jefferson, man, he been oh. gone. Channing Fry got traded. Oh, you t- you talking about my man LBJ on LA, baby? Ah! I knew you were gonna go there. Oh man. Um, okay, so last season, um, which is it's I mean it's kind of hard to evaluate because obviously this team is so different. But fifth offense, 29th defense. When you think about it, the 29th defense is incredible that they still made the NBA Finals. Um, but interestingly enough, like the Bulls, who had a t- 23 a point differential of a 23 win team and won 27 games. This Cavs team had a point differential of 43, uh, of a 43-win team, I should say, and they actually won 50 games. So pretty lucky and kind of, you know, things went their way certain times. But some storylines that I've identified, I think the main question is is to tank or not to tank for this team. I think that most people in their mind would, would think that tanking for at least one year would be the idea because their pick is protected 1 through 10 this season. Otherwise, it goes to the Atlanta Hawks for that, I think it was the Kyle Korver trade. Um and really, this team, like, it has some nice pieces, but does it really have the overall talent for, to make the playoffs, even in the weak Eastern Conference? I mean, we're going to have Kevin Love. It's going to be the Minnesota Kevin Love show, which will be really fun to watch and, and good for him. Um, and they've got a bunch of solid role players. I think I'm interested to see um, Chetty Osman in a larger role because um, he has someone who has on this team actually has some solid potential and can kind of handle the ball a little bit um, and provide a different look for their offense. Um but again, you you just look at this roster, and it's it's like a weird collection of, of misfit role players built around one star who you know is, is I think Kevin Love's thirty now, so is he going to be as good as he was in Minnesota? Um, can he stay on the floor? He's, he gets hurt almost every year. I think he misses like fifteen to twenty games every year at this point. Um, you know that that's that's the main question I think of to tank or not to tank, given the protections on their pick. Um, 
And, you know, they signed Kevin Love to that extension. It seems like they're focused on, on making the playoffs, but this could be a team where they get off to a slow start or they have an injury in, like, November or December and they decide to just full-out tank it, tankathon all the way to the bottom. So that's one of the main storylines I'm watching for this team this season. Yeah, I'm, I think the storyline for me is, and we already addressed moving on from LeBron, proving that they can move on. We saw how the Cavs did in 20, um, 2010, 2011 when LeBron left and how ugly that was. Um, and, and it's almost the same now, except that now they had a draft pick and a young player in Colin Sexton who they can kind of build around. Whereas, you know, that 2010-2011 season, you were relying on uh, uh, aging Antoine Jameson. I'm sorry, he wasn't aging at that point. He was aged <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a aging Mo Williams. It was just a shell of a team that was built around an all-world talent. This time, you do have Kevin Love, and we already mentioned that. I mean, he's he's Minnesota error. Error, Kevin Love, in a sense. But he is 30. It's not like back in his prime years. Then, obviously, in his prime years, he wasn't that successful. There was other mitigating factors. But what I'm trying to say is, even now, if he can be even a bit of what he was then, he'll make he'll be more of an anchor for that team on the offensive end, and he'll make life a ton, uh, just a whole lot easier for Colin as the, as the franchise player now. I mean, you have Kevin Love there, but Colin is clearly the one moving forward that will grow into the face of the Caps, unless he gets moved to trade or anything. But I really do like the young players on Cleveland. Chetty Osmond already talked about him. Um, still young, but he plays all out all the time. He was LeBron's favorite for that reason. Same with Larry Nance Jr., who I'm, they're looking to extend. You know, they have high hopes for him. I'm excited to see him. I think he wants to grow and wants to grind, and that's going to be great. Sexton still has a long way to go. Um, just being athletic and going 100 miles per hour is not going to cut it, but that's fine because on the team he's on right now, he's going to plenty of time to grow and mature as a point guard. And, and as we all know, young point guards are usually just trash to begin with anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, defensively, he's going to be horrible. I'm going to throw these players that are in Coach Lou's rotation. How many of these guys can you say are good defenders? George Hill, Rodney Hood, Osmond, Love, Nance Jr., Tristan Thompson, Colin Sexton, Kyle Korver, J.R. Smith, Sam Decker, Jordan Clarkson. I did not mention David Nwaba because I do not think that Tyrone Tyrone Lou, as much as I want him to, I do not think that Tyrone Lou would give him uh, like consistent minutes, at least not initially. But out of all those players I mentioned, what is that? Three players? Am I am I giving them too much there? I mean, Hill can be solid. Hood can be okay, but he's just so inconsistent, especially his last season with the Cavs. Oh it was just abysmal. Clarkson's just terrible on that in the floor. Jr. Like. He used to be like okay and solid, but I feel like on a, I feel like on a bad team he's not going to give that kind of effort. Um, Corver, no, but at least he gives some kind of effort. Um, Decker, don't even bother. Uh, yeah, Noaba, Noaba, when they need to stop, they're going to have to play him. I mean, he is he's going to be their best perimeter defender. Um, it was a, uh-huh. a nice, solid, sneaky pickup for them, and a, a player that the Bulls should have kept, by the way. Um, uh, I yep. mean, my God, why don't you just offer Jabari Parker like two or three million dollars less? No one's offering Jabari Parker seventeen million dollars a year. You could have offered him that and then kept Noaba and actually had a decent defender on your roster. But that's enough. We already passed the Bulls. <laughs> oh, legit, um, nobody was knocking down the door for him. Exactly. Oh, that that leads to another question I had to ask. Another weakness or another storyline for me, real quick. Which players of all those players, J.R. Smith occasionally. George Hill sometimes Rodney Hood again inconsistent, but outside of Kevin Love, you know, you put him on the block, you put him on the elbows, you spot him up for three, he's great, right? Outside of that, who are reliable shot creators for the Caps? They really, they lost Kyrie the year before, they lost LeBron now. I mean, the ability to get off a shot, to generate a shot off a one-on-one action, just you and that person, offense for yourself and others, literally won them a title. <laughs> like, and you lose the two best players who could do it. Hood was shaky. In Utah, I think he was okay in Utah, but like once he came, or he was solid in Utah, and then once he came to Cleveland, you kind of saw where that is. Clarkson can get up shots, 
but I don't know if he can get them in consistently. <laughs> I mean, and who else after that? Yeah, and that's the other thing. It's like, that's what I'm saying. If, if Kevin Love goes down, this team is going to be so bad. Um, oh, that's, I'll be my league pass team to watch a dumpster fire. I mean, that's the problem with this team. Like, Kevin Love, you, you almost can take it to the bank that he's going to miss 15, 20 games. And in, right those, in those games, who, right here, folks. who is going to create for them offensively? I mean... Do you want to watch Jordan Clarkson shoot 25 times in a game? Well, tune in on December 16th uh, <laughs> against the Orlando Magic because it's going to happen. Um, He's going to do his best Smith impression. <laughs> exactly. That's the concern. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, if Kevin Love goes down, they've got veterans on the roster. But, like, again, George Hill passes prime. You just kind of look at, you know, George Hill on the Jazz two, two seasons ago now. It will be two seasons ago now. Was really good. Like, he was you know, extremely underrated point guard. He goes to Sacramento, has his injury problem, um, obviously on a losing attitude. attitude on a losing team. Comes to Cleveland, it was just really hit or miss, and now Colin Sexton's the future. And, you know, the, one of the key questions I have is is how long does he start right away, Colin Sexton, or, or do they just kind of gradually grow him in with, with George Hill starting? Um, because Sexton is, an, is one of the interesting players, of course, not only this season but moving forward because – you know, he's, he's known for his defense, you know, and how well will that translate right away? Obviously, he's a rookie, but he's got that phys- he's got the physical tools defensively to be a pest, at least. And, and he can gives you some effort on that end of the floor, which is what they're going to need for sure. But the question is, what can he provide offensively? Because he wasn't a good shooter in college. I think he shot 33% from beyond the arc, below average. Um, his creation skills never really blew me away when I was watching some of him in Summer League and some of the, the film before the draft. I didn't watch that much, but enough. Um... And so with this team, again, that, that's lacking the offensive capabilities from guys that can create their own shot or create shots for others. And if they have to rely on Kevin Love and if Kevin Love goes down, what do they do? And that's the real, that's the real concern um, and why I'm really down on them overall. Yeah, it's kind of going to be it's going to be scary in that sense. Long term, future wise, they have some young pieces like we already mentioned. But you also have players like Jared Smith. Actually, I think Jared Smith. Uh, has a non-guarantee after this season, if I remember correctly. Um, I know you're stuck with Tristan Thompson for a while. Um, I think you're stuck with George Hill for a bit. Like, there's some contracts here that are going to be kind of hard to move. Um, and then Kevin Love, if, if things do go wrong, are you going to just say, you know what, we have him locked in long-term, he can help a contender for a couple of years, or a pseudo-contender, you know, Milwaukee, what do you have for him, or something like that, where, do they dangle him, or do they, is he, is he going to be the clear person on a, you know, below 500 team in the basement of the Eastern Conference like he was prime Minnesota Kevin Love in the Western Conference. You know, what are the deal? What is the deal if things go wrong, when things go wrong? Because they will go wrong. I mean, unless you get a surprisingly strong, let's say 65, nope, 65 is average. Let's say 72 games from Kevin Love playing consistently all-star if just below that. Colin Sexton shows great promise. Um, J.R. Smith and Tristan Thompson, old mainstay, stay steady. Chetty Osman breaks a whole new level in his sophomore year, you know, really showing his grasp of the game after a strong summer. Like, there's so many things that have to go right. Tyrone Liu becoming Phil Jackson on an X's and O's level. I mean, it, it's a lot that has to go right. And obviously, going wrong is what we think is going to happen. So how will they respond? I think I'm more curious to see that. Because by signing Kevin Love already, that does make him, in my opinion, more of a trade piece because you have him deal long term. I mean, I'm not talking about the minutia of the contract and how long and I mean how um, expensive it is. But now you can say, okay, I'm giving you someone. He's not like going to be able to bolt next year. But at the same time, he is 30, and depending on how he plays by midseason this year, if he is injured completely down or his effectiveness is lost because he can no longer handle the load that he had to handle five years ago, then, then what do we have? Yeah, 
and that's the question. I mean, there's just so many questions about this team. And sure, you like some of their young pieces, but really, I wouldn't like their young pieces in a rebuild unless they tank this year to add that potential top seven, top eight pick. Um, that kind of talent you add on a that. pretty weak draft so far. Yeah, if you kind of if you can add another top, you know, six, seven, eight, even the top ten pick to their young core, then I start to like a little bit more. If they fight for the playoffs as long as possible and lose their first-round pick this year, I think it's going to really kill them in the, in the future. And, you know, you mentioned those contracts. I looked them up. J.R. Smith next year is, is partially guaranteed for $3.8 million. Um, and George Hill is actually partially guaranteed for just $1 million next season. Oh, there um, you go. Wow. So those are contracts you could actually move if a team is looking to get an upgrade and then not have to worry about next season with the, with the guarantee and, and hit the salary cap. But this team... You know, again, there's so many questions. I think that, you know, I'll just go to the over-under now. Um, their over-under is 30 and a half, basically the same as the Bulls. I'm, I'm going the under. Um, you know, I really think that, and this, again, I always hate to, like, justify my opinion based on injuries, but I feel like with Kevin Love, there's like it's, like, okay to kind of just say, like, one Kevin Love injury, which is a very good chance of happening, would, would derail their season, or at least for how many games he misses. Um, and at that point, if that happens, you know, in the first half of the season, do they just look to tank by the deadline and trade some of these veterans? Um, that could be useful on other teams that are looking to contend for the playoffs or even win a playoff series or two. Um, because at that point, maybe once they see the writing on their wall in terms of Love missing 15 games early in the season and they're well under 500 and these veterans are, you know, not being good for the locker room for the young guys or something like that, or they just want to make the smart decision and kind of focus on youth and development and, and, and the draft pick. I could see all that playing into one perfect storm that leads to a, a pretty bad season, um, which wouldn't be a terrible thing. It's not like, oh, we have to prove we're better, we, we can win without LeBron. Like, no, like everyone knows you're not going to win without LeBron. LeBron's great, and your roster was built to play around LeBron. Once you take LeBron off that roster, it's very bad. I mean, or it's bad, you know, for itself. It, it's not good at creating for itself. Um, put LeBron on this roster. Obviously, you say you can put LeBron on any roster, but this team obviously was built with LeBron in mind, shooters around, guys that really don't create their own shot. You take LeBron off that, that driving force, you're going to be bad, and it's okay. It's not like you have to prove anyone wrong because everyone knows that this roster was built for LeBron and it'll take at least another year or two to create a roster that's not built around LeBron. So it's okay to be bad this season. It's okay to focus on your draft pick. It's okay to focus on young development. I'm going the under on 30 and a half. I'm also taking the under. I, I do want to say, you know, I think Cleveland, the front office, at least under David Griffin, did as good as they could. Kobe Allman didn't mess them up either. Um, they made the moves they had to. The fact that they're stuck with these contracts that they are now, um, some of them they will be will have a chance and will probably be just most likely taken off the books next year. But they're just going to write it out. I mean, maybe you can get Kyle Korver, you know, bought, bought out or something to a championship contender by midseason or whatever the case may, may be. But they made the right moves. I mean, it's not their fault that the best player – well, I guess it is their fault that he left. But in the same vein, he left, and the team they had is the team that LeBron wanted while he was here. So you're really just kind of dealing with the pieces. And it's going to be up to Tyrone Luda to make it happen. Uh, speaking of that, real quick, well, the last person – I think the only coach I trust less in the Central Division than Fred Hoiberg would probably be Tyrone Luda. <laughs> I just don't know about his coaching chops in general. Like, how much of that was him? How much of that was LeBron? You know, they were, uh, well, it's the same thing that people asked with Eric Spolstra. I mean, Eric Spolstra was solid and had some success before LeBron got to Miami. Then, of course, that's he had, what I thought was the difference. Then yeah, he, then he had the great success with LeBron, and even you know, since LeBron left, you know, they've won a playoff series. They've been you know over five hundred, I think, two of the three years he's been gone or something like that. Um, 
so I mean, I, I think Spolstra is a great coach. But yeah, I agree that it's like Lou is another kind of unproven commodity, or not even a commodity, maybe on this roster, but an unproven aspect of this roster. Um, and again, a coach that might cost them wins, but again, that, that's probably not the worst thing in the world. Yep, but I'm taking the under, so I'm right there with you, man. We can keep going down this uh, kind of dreary ride here. Yeah, I mean, it's, the, the Central Division is just, uh, it, you know, if you picture clouds, just a cloudy day, that's just what I picture the Central <laughs> Division. I mean, no offense to any of these teams, and we'll get to the, we're starting to get to the teams that are more competitive and, and more interesting and exciting. Um, but yeah, it, it's just overall pretty cloudy outlook for this division. But let's move on to Troy Pistons. Interesting offseason. Detroit. <laughs> Interesting offseason that resulted in them having brought in, bringing in, sorry, Dwayne Casey as head coach. <laughs> uh, obviously, removing Stan Van Gundy as president of basketball operations and head coach. Um, which again, no coach should have the same title as GM. No, there should be no dual coach GM roles after Thibodeau is eventually fired. Um, <laughs> and then their offseason. Um, they brought in Glenn Robinson III and Jose Calderon, but they lost Anthony Tolliver. So it's a really it's an uneventful offseason considering the fact that their financial restrictions prevented them to, from doing something. But moves on the margin, and obviously it starts with head coach, that could make the biggest difference. So last season they were the 19th offense and the 13th defense. Obviously they made a huge trade to get Blake Griffin basically at the midway point. So didn't get a huge sample of him on the team. And obviously, you know, hopefully he can stay healthy and hopefully Reggie Jackson can stay healthy. But those are the storylines that I've identified is the first one is just how good can this Griffin Drummond pairing be? Um, because again, it was a decent sample size that we got with them last season at last season. And when they were both on the floor, they only had a 1.8 net rating, which is not exactly the net rating you want from your two star players. Um, especially when they're on the floor together. Um, can Blake Griffin continue to expand his range? That's the thing that he's going to have to do regardless, just as he ages and as the NBA game kind of evolves. Um, again, having the ball in his hands more as a playmaker will help, I think, to get more space on the floor and just give more space for Drummond. Um, how do they mesh with, with Reggie Jackson on the floor with them at the same time? Because the thing is, the depth behind Griffin and Drummond, basically their front court depth, is very suspect. I mean, John Lohr is injured. I think he's going to miss at least the first couple weeks of the season. Um, and then when he comes back, you know, he's, he's a solid, dependable guy, but not something you want to play, you know, serious minutes, especially for a team competing for the playoffs. Henry Ellenson has shown absolutely nothing in his NBA career so far. Zaza Pachulia, what are you even getting from him at this point in, in his career? Two rings, experience. <laughs> Game seven, baby. <laughs> But, yeah, it, it, the depth is, is really concerning in the front court. So if Griffin goes down, which, again, almost like Kevin Love, Blake Griffin has had injuries each of the past couple of seasons. Um, and if he goes down, the depth is going to be a real issue for them in the front court. And then the fact that their pairing of their two stars just hasn't been that good overall or wasn't that good overall last season. And then Reggie Jackson in the perimeter. I mean, they're going to need him to stay healthy because he's only played 97 games total in the past two seasons. Um, you look at his last healthy season, 2015-16, this dude averaged 19 points and a little over six assists per game, shot basically league average 35.5% on three-pointers. Um, you know, he's another guy who can create shots for others, can create shots for himself, isn't afraid of taking big shots. He just adds such a huge part of their offense, obviously, so teams don't have to focus only on Griffin or Drummond. They have to focus on Reggie Jackson, and he can kind of get some attention off of the other guys like their shooters on the wing. Um, because if, if, if Jackson stays healthy, this team is going to fight for the playoffs if they can stay healthy you know, through the rest of the roster. If Jackson, again, continues to miss 20, 30, or even more games, 
I don't see any way they can make the playoffs with their lack of perimeter creation, their lack of front court depth, and because of the limitations of their roster. Even with Dwayne Casey, who I think is a better coach than Stan Van Gundy and can get more and hopefully maybe develop some of their guys on the wing a little bit more. But, you know, I don't view Casey as that kind of guy that's going to be... Like, I'm not viewing Casey like we'll talk about Mike Budenholzer joining the Bucks at the end of the episode. Like, I'm not viewing it like that kind of coaching change. I'm viewing it as a positive, but not one that's going to overcome their lack of depth and their potential injuries and, and the, the misfit roster. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. You already mentioned Reggie Jackson, so I'm going to kind of keep a show with him. What does he have when he plays? <laughs> and is, it will it be enough? I think that's the important thing to say. You already saw how many games he's missed. Injuries have kept him out of more games than he's played. And, I mean, I like him. I really do. But I just I just need to see more as far as him putting a full campaign like he did in 2015, especially on a team with more talent supposedly than what he had then. Um, and that brings me to the front court with Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin. Um, Drummond's taken small steps in improving, specifically his free throws last year, but it hasn't been that one big leap. I don't think he got enough credit for his passing and, and free throw shooting last year. I mean, it was it was there. It was definitely a subplot. It was a point when you brought up Andre Drummond. But it wasn't something I think was like, I don't know, it was two big parts of his game that really kind of evolved out of nowhere that I think were important. And part of that was the scheme with Stan Van Gundy as far as his facilitating. But you can see a little bit of that pass and eye that was still there. His free throw shooting, that was just work. I just I just wanted to put that out there. Um, For Blake Griffin, I mean, people are acting like he's, you know, declining goods. And I, I guess in a certain extent he is. But he is still, in my opinion, a star-level player. He's still one of the best big man facilitators in the league. I think an NBA team, and in this case the Pistons, can legitimately run their offense through him. So I don't think that'll be an issue. And he's been solely really working on that perimeter shot, which is going to fit right in with what Casey wants. He shot nearly 35% on more than five attempts last per game last year. If he can measure up to 38 39%, that's a, that's a legi- he's already a legitimate threat, but that's much more dangerous for him. But like you said, it's going to be not only injuries, but also the fact that Jackson, Griffin, and Drummond are all pretty ineffic- inefficient offensive players. So, you know, it's going to have a, a hard to have a great offense unless the team can somehow get those guys better shots. And losing Anthony Tolliver did not help. The dude shot <laughs> um, .663 from true, as far as a shoot, true shooting percentage. And now you take him out. I mean, the dude, as far as Tolliver, great shooter, th- lights out. I think he was in the top, I want to say top 10 in percentage from three, but let me look that up and keep my stats backed up. But you place him with Henry Ellison and John Lewis. And, and just for context, John Lewis missed almost all of last season due to injury. Isn't nearly the three-point shooter that Tolliver is. And we already mentioned Henry Ellison, who, I mean, what more can I say? <laughs> but it's fine, because now Andre Drummond's going to shoot threes, apparently. Oh, so, um, I mean, someone who shot 28% beyond 10 feet all of last year is now going to bomb away. I mean, but it has come from the coach who, you know, kind of helped – DeMar DeRozan shoot 287 threes last year. So, or at a 31%. Was that, was that Nick Nurse? That's, that implemented dun, dun, that dun. Raptors offensive changes. All the all the reports were that it was Nick Nurse who kind of came up with, and not came up with it, but just kind of urged the team to shoot, you know, become a more modern offense. And sure, Casey has to approve that, and Casey has to think it's, you know, a good idea. They're but slandering him, man. They're there, slandering there is, him. There is a way where it's like the assist. I mean, we'll see with Nick Nurse in Toronto. Obviously, he took over their head coaching job, so that's a whole, you know, bigger role for him. But um, is this the point in this Pistons preview where I tell you that Blake Griffin hasn't played more than 67 games since the 2013-2014 wow. season? Wow. So, you. Thank let's, you for bringing it up. Let's run it back. Last year, 58 games. The year before, 61. 15, 2015, 2016, 35. 2014, 15, 67. 
and then he played 80 in 2013, 2014. So, See, I remember that one. I remember that 80 campaign. So, now, now I'm depressed again. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so, you know, banking on him getting injured is, is kind of the same as Kevin Love. And again, you mentioned it, and, and I mentioned it too, the front court depth is really bad. Um, one aspect of this team that I think I'm going to keep my eye on the most is, is their wing. Because, the, really, what do they have on the wing? It's still kind of a question mark. Like, Luke Kennard was kind of under the radar solid last season. Um, projects to be, you know, a really good shooter that they'll, they're going to need on the floor, um, especially with when they're bigs on the floor. And Reggie Jackson, who's not really that good of a shooter. We're still obviously waiting for Stanley Johnson to do something. Uh, I don't know what that is. Um, play tough defense on a consistent basis and, and knock down open three-pointers, maybe. Is that so much to ask? He projects to be, like, honestly, he kind of seems like a James Ennis, like that kind of player, that kind of role player, um, which is disappointing for where he was drafted. But again, you know, we can't kind of view him based on where he was drafted. It's not his fault. Um, Reggie Bullock, elite shooter, uh, had a really good campaign last season. Again, someone they're going to need on the floor to provide that floor spacing. Interestingly enough, this team, I didn't expect it. This team was 16th in attempts and three-pointers attempted per game. That's about league average. They were actually fourth in team percentage. They knocked in almost 38% of their threes as a team, which is which is pretty interesting. I, I didn't actually expect that. Um, Reggie Bullock was a huge part of that. Um, and then, you know, adding Glenn Robinson the third, I think was a really nice addition given what they could have added financially. Um, I think he's, he projects, he's not a solid 3 and D wing, but he has the tool set to be that 3 and D wing on a pretty cheap, reasonable contract for them. So I hated that they lost Tolliver. I love the Tolliver fit for Minnesota. Um, but I, I like the pickup for Glenn Robinson. And, you know, you look at it. Luke Kennard, Stanley Johnson, Reggie Bullock, Glenn Robinson III, Langston Gallery is still kind of there, I guess. Um, they've got, they've got, like, it's, it's like nice depth. There's not like really impressive talent. There's not people that kind of wow you anywhere. But uh, my question mark, and one thing that, that might define their season besides their health, is what do they have on the wing? Is there any development? Can Casey kind of, imp- in, you know, kind of implement or, or kind of instruct some more development for Kennard and Stanley Johnson? Um, you can Bullock repeat his shooting season from last season? Can Robinson the third stay healthy and provide some 3 and D, you know, play on a cheap contract? They have pieces on the wing that intrigue me if you put them all together, maybe into one player. Um, but having them all in different players makes it interesting. But I want to see how this rotation plays out on the wing. Who takes a step forward? Hopefully Kennard does. And hopefully the other guys kind of stay at least the same, you know, as they did last season or maybe Stanley Johnson can improve. But if their wings can develop and play at a similar level to last season or better and they can stay healthy, then we're talking about a team that, could really, you know, comfortably make the playoffs, at least for, like, the A seed. Um, but if, if, if the wing development doesn't happen and they can't stay healthy, you know, it's going it, to be a real issue. Oh, yeah. It's just going to largely be disappointing. And also looking at the history with that, the fact that you have Griffin and Drummond long-term for a couple more years, um, Griffin being the more scary contract, obviously. So, you know, little wiggle room, going to have a middling roster. The, you need to get every ounce of talent that you can out of this. And if you can get a late playoff spot in the Eastern Conference, that's a victory for Detroit. That's really best-case scenario here. All right, so over-under. Their over-under is 38. Um, This one, I'm going to go with the over. Um, They won 39 games last year. And I just think that continued, you know, continued development from their wings, I think maybe just more time to mesh and maybe a different way of using them if Dwayne Casey implements something a little bit different with their front court pairing. Um, And hopefully, if Reggie Jackson stays healthy, I think that if you add in Casey as a better coach, that should be around 40 wins, I think, in the Eastern Conference. If they get injured, if there isn't that development from the wings, if their front court pairing still proves to just not be very effective, then, you know, I could, I could see this team, you know, being the under. 
Uh, I can see this team kind of struggling with injury, struggling with fit, and not getting development from the young guys and being like a 35-win team. But I still, for some reason, I'm, I'm a little bit optimistic, I guess, that there'll be some kind of improvement on the wing from some of their young players. And I think that Casey is just worth like another win or two over Stan Van Gundy. And they started at 39 wins baseline last year. I see them winning 40 games. I was going to say that exact same thing. I'm going to give them the over. I'm going to go with 39 just to be, you know, contrary. <laughs> um, one little closing thought on Detroit has nothing to do with the current 2018-2019 roster, but I really wish they had kept Tobias Harris in that 12th pick. Oh, man, yeah. I mean, Tobias Harris, I mean, it, it, Tobias Harris is just some, a player that I think will have a really big season. Obviously, we, we haven't even gotten to the Clippers. That'll be the next episode. But, yeah, it's it just – it's frustrating, and the trade for Griffin, again, Stan Van Gunny making that last attempt to try and make the playoffs to save his job, and it didn't work, and now they're kind of stuck with working around Griffin, which, again, you're working around a star, but a star that doesn't really fit very well and doesn't really stay on the court and has that contract, which prevents them from adding to the core around him. So, yeah. uh, All that for him to be on the ESPN. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Indiana Pacers. Um, their offseason was fairly eventful. Um, they signed Tyreek Evans. They signed Doug McDermott and Kyle O'Quinn in free agency. They drafted Aaron Holiday. Uh, I think it was pick 23. Um, they, Lance, they lost Lance Stevenson and Al Jefferson, I think, went to China. It's not a big loss at all. Um, <laughs> last season, they had the 13th-ranked offense and the 12th-ranked defense, so you know, pretty much solid on both ends of the floor. They had the point differential of a 46-win team. Um, and storylines that I've identified, you know, it's really – I, the quality depth across the board for this roster is what intrigues me um, and, and what will kind of win them games throughout the grind of a regular season. You look at their backcourt depth, Darren Collison, Corey Joseph, um, obviously Aaron Holiday, you know, Oladipo and Tyreek Evans, uh, maybe at the two-guard position or even the three if they want to go small. On the wing, they got Boyan Bogdanovich, Doug McDermott, they had that. They had him there for some shooting. Uh, and then their bigs, you know, Thaddeus Young, TJ Leaf, uh, Miles Turner, Demondis Sabonis, Kylo Quinn. It'll be interesting because Sabonis' best position, I think, is at center. Um, and, and obviously that's where Kylo Quinn is playing. And it's weird that they signed him. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how that front court rotation works out behind projecting starters of, of maybe Thad Young and Miles Turner. You know, Sabonis, is he playing more power forward now with O'Quinn there? Is, is, is O'Quinn kind of the third string center emergency? Where does TJ Leaf project in as, as, a, shooting, as a shooting big? Um, maybe they kind of move him more to the wing to create more playing time for the front court to, to satisfy Sabonis and O'Quinn together. Um, but this depth, especially the additions of Evans and maybe even McDermott, um, should allow the offense not to die when Oladipo's off the floor. Because last season, the offense was seven points per 100 possessions better with Oladipo on the floor. You know, overall, he had a 14.4 net rating, which is obviously indicative of a star player. Um, and Tyreek Evans, obviously, everyone knows he had that career year last season kind of resurged out of nowhere, especially from sh- his shooting was incredible. Was I think he shot 40% from beyond the arc last season, um, which is not anywhere close yep. to what he did in previous years. So does that continue? Um, hopefully it wasn't an anomaly because, you know, then they paid him for a player they might not get. Yeah, last season, 19.4 points, 5.2 assists, 5.1 rebounds. 40% on over on five five and a half attempts per game. Um, this is from a guy who's a career career 32% shooter. And for his for, before that's before last season, he had never attempted more than 3.43s per game. He jumped up to over 5, actually it was five and a half and jumped up to 40%. So are you getting that kind of shooting? Um, if so, that's huge for their floor spacing especially around their bigs like Savonis and O'Quinn. Um, and if you're not getting that guy, 
you're certainly getting another creator offensively to create shots for himself and others, but the floor spacing might be an issue and how they match up with them and what kind of lineups do they do? Do they do Collison, Oladipo, and Evans together at the same time and go small? Um, there's some interesting pieces. There's some interesting ways they can play, and they've got a lot of depth, which I think will help them. Um, but there are, I think, a little bit more concerning aspects when this team, when you evaluate them of them not being a surprise anymore, and are they getting the players that they brought in to what... Are they getting the players who came into this team... Are they getting what they're supposed to be getting from them? That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, no, I'm right there with you. It's, it's a great storyline. I think another one for me, and it might have already been tossed a little bit about, but Miles Turner. Yeah, that was my I second see. one on my list. <laughs> yep, I kind of figured Oladipo really turned a franchise-altering kind of season. It felt like with the way he built his body and his game, turned himself into an outright superstar. We already know all the greatness he did. What about Miles Turner? He has that t- kind of talent on really good nights he looks at the type of player but he really doesn't tap into it consistent enough for me or i think anyone else to prove that he is worth a long-term contract that we know he's going to ask for he's a good shooter but he's not a great shooter he's a good rebounder is he a great rebounder is he a solid playmaker in space is he a great playmaker i mean he, he's more of, of a in my in my opinion a secondary piece first to paul george now to Oladipo. but do you really want to be on the books for a long-term contract that pays him upwards of 20 million which he'll probably demand because if you have that on the books and you forget that you have Oladipo who you're paying $21 million in each of the next three seasons, that's a great affordable deal for Oladipo as a 26-year-old two-way star. That's great. But when you put him up with Turner, all of a sudden that's almost 40% of the cap to just those two. So it would be hard to really fill up the roster talent-wise around them if Turner doesn't hit his ceiling. And so it's kind of tricky because – I mean, is, is he going to accept less than star caliber money, even though we know he's not a star? Are you going to be putting him into a lesser Andrew Wiggins type category? Or are you going to have to, like, you know, pay him what he's worth? And what is he worth? Because it's going to be difficult to find a team that's going to max him and make the Pacers match, at least looking at what I'm seeing as far as cap seats. But what what's the plan with him? I think how he plays this year is going to be big, not only for his long-term future in Indiana, but also Indiana as a franchise. Exactly. Yeah, he needs to be that kind of Robin to Oladipo's Batman. And you look at the stats last season, just almost across the board, he uh, got worse. I mean, he, he, he regressed. So he played, he played less. He went from, in 16-17, he, he played 31.4 minutes per game. That dropped down to 28 minutes per game last season. Plus, he missed 16 games last season. Um, points went down from 14.5 to 12.7. Rebounds went from 7.3 to 6.4. Blocks went from 2.1 per game to 1.8 per game. Uh, free throw percentage went down 3%. His shoot, his three-point shooting is the only thing that inc- improved. He increased his attempt by over one per game, and then he increased his percentage to 35.7%, basically league average, a little bit above. For a big man, that's obviously huge. Um, and then you look at it, he had a 2.5 net rating last season. Um, that, that's not really that good. I mean, it's just like that's kind of like a role player kind of net rating. Um, mm-hmm. He really just has to improve on both ends of the floor, like you said, as he approaches a possible extension or restricted free agency. And it's just an intriguing player because he has the game to be the modern center, a rim protector that can space the floor. I mean, that's exactly that's like a dream of, of a center, of a, a game that you want, a skill set you want from your big man. Um, and there's been all the reports that he's been working out hard in the offseason to improve his body and his stamina. Um, hopefully he can go back to playing that 30, 31 minutes per game, take that scoring up a little bit more, keep the shooting, maybe increase the attempts a little bit more. Um, the shot blocking has been great. The rebounding has been not great. Um, but, yeah, you know, a potential – a breakout year for Turner is, is a thing that could actually swing their season, especially when you talk about teams 
that could be fighting the Pacers for that fourth seed in the East. There are a lot of basically everyone kind of agrees on the top three in the East in some order of, of Boston, Toronto, and Philly. And then you've got all these teams that could be fighting for that fourth seed. You know, everyone from Indiana, Milwaukee, Washington, those are three teams that are going to be fighting tooth and nail for that fourth seed to get that home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs. So that, that Miles Turner breakout season versus a Miles Turner from last season or just a slight marginal improvement could be the thing that swings a couple of games to the Pacers and swings their playoff seeding and therefore swings their playoff fate. Um, and again, you have to kind of, you want to be able to justify giving him an extension or matching on a big contract if he gets it in 2019 free agency. And him doing this in a breakout season, putting up the numbers and having the impact on winning will allow you to justify that. So yeah, I agree. That was my second storyline. I'm glad you mentioned it. Breakout year for Turner, question mark, is probably the defining <laughs> potential aspect, uh, the, the defining unknown of this Pacers team, considering the fact that everyone else on their roster, for the most part, you know what you're going to get from them, or you're either going to get a little bit of regression, maybe from like a Bogdanovich or an Evans, or you're going to get kind of the similar what we saw last year from you know Collison, Oladipo, you know Thad Young, or something like that. Yeah, it's going to be something to look at, definitely. And also, I mean, we already mentioned Oladipo slightly, at least I did. But how? I mean, watching him, and I'm not even going to pretend like I was the one who watched him so intently. You probably watched more of Oladipo than I did most assuredly, but how much of his game, I mean, he improved literally everything from his shooting to him as an offensive creator, you know, facilitator, two-way superstar already. How much of that's sustainable, like moving forward? Because, I mean, I'll tell you one thing. They lost a, a sneaky big piece of their uh, of their team in Lance Stevens. Oh, I can't finish that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> um, but what I'm trying to say is um, he's clearly their main player. This this Pacers team is only going to go as far as he leads them. Um, they have great supporting ca- supporting cast or interesting supporting cast with Tyreek Evans and Doug McDermott and Aaron Holiday and, and we already talked about Miles Turner. But they're going as far as Oladipo leads them, and he really worked on everything. He seems to be striving to get better. I mean, he's they have the team that they can just plug and chug as far as spacing them, as far as spacing goes, which allows them to be who they are. You know, just in their roles. But um. You know, right now, I mean, he he's he's the guy. I mean, and I don't know. It, it, he had a great, strong year, and it really came out of nowhere. And it's it's been it was awesome. But like, uh, is it just me, or do you have any reservation in him repeating that same performance um, coming up this year? Um, I don't really have many reservations about it. You know, there were he started out the season like scorching hot from from beyond the arc. That actually regressed, and he finished the year at thirty seven point one percent, which is only one percent higher than last season on a ba- basically a very similar number of attempts per game. Obviously, the scoring went up a bit, a bunch from sixteen points per game to twenty three. The assists went from two point six in OKC to four point three. But then you look at it. Even in Orlando, he was averaging basically four assists per game in his first three seasons. So he has that playmaking ability. The rebounding increased. The steals increased a lot. The 2.4 led the league there. Um, What was most impressive about last season was not only did he take a huge jump offensively um, in terms of his role, he went from a 21.4 usage in OKC in 16-17 to a 30.1 in Indiana as the go-to guy and yet was still um, all-defensive team. Uh, and still was, you know, leading the league in steals and still giving effort on both ends of the floor. Like like you said, a true two-way star. Um, I don't have much, many concerns because none of the numbers really are, are that concerning for me. The shooting wasn't like 42%. The, the shooting was only 37% from beyond the arc. That seems like a number, still, obviously, yeah. he, he can repeat. The scoring, the natural scoring ability, I think he just developed um, his game and worked hard and kind of got the role that fits him perfectly. Um 
I, I could see him. You know, I, I see him putting up the same season. I, at least I'm assuming that that's the case. Like, I'm not gonna project their over under based on Oladipo regressing. Like, I'm expecting the same Oladipo um, and a, an Oladipo that the team could not win without. I think they were 0 and 7 or 0 and 8 with, without him on the floor. Um, oh yeah, like, I, that's how bad it was. Um, so I, I don't really have concerns about that. The concerning aspect I do about this team is that they don't take threes. <laughs> they were 27th in three-pointers attempted last season. I really would like Oladipo, um, like I said, Miles Turner before. Maybe they can add T.J. Leaf on the floor a little bit more to just add more shooting because they actually were uh, seventh in percentage as a team. So they can hit the threes. It's all about, just, it's all about taking more. Um, but they still had a solid offense, you know, despite that lack of uh, lack of shooting. But I don't have concerns about Oladipo. I have more concerns about a guy like Tyreek Evans, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tyreek, I, I get that, and, and there's plenty to to be concerned with as far as not the age and, and the aberration aberration of a three point shot that he had last year and whether that's sustainable. And looking at Victor Oladipo's stats, which I did not really realize, but every year since he's been in the league, he's increased his field goal percentage and his three point percentage. There you go. It's called it's improvement. I mean, that's kind of crazy. It went like leave from 41 to 47 percent this past season. He came to the league shooting 32 percent from three. Now he's shooting 37 percent. I mean, even with that, you know, regression that he had this past season. That, I guess you're right. You, I mean, I, I, yeah, okay. I mean, it's just he had that potential coming out obviously in 2013 where he was drafted and everything. I'm not saying that at all. I just maybe I was more concerned about how Cleveland took him out of the playoffs when they put their whole attention on him and now realizing that hey, this is Oladipo now that. Teams are going to, I mean, this is not Oladipo, this is who he is. Teams are going to just focus their attention on. But looking at his improvement and what you've already said, maybe I'm just uh, jumping the gun a bit. I mean, so, even, uh, I'm a, I mean even, even in the playoffs, but even in the playoffs, I mean, he shot 40% on threes, actually. That was on, on eight, yeah. attem- by the way, eight attempts per game. That's what I want to see from him. That's a Cleveland guy. 40, 40% <laughs> on eight attempts. It, I mean, 40% he might not be able to hit in the regular season, but that eight attempts is, is a nice number. Still averaged 23 game. Actually increases rebounding to 8.3 rebounds per game, six assists, kept the steals at 2.4 per game. The efficiency was okay. Uh, true shooting of, of basically 55%, which is kind of league average, but he was a positive on both ends. So even in the playoffs, teams game planning for him and focusing on him and trapping him, everything like that, it frustrated him a little bit. But over the grand scheme of that seven-game series, he was, he was pretty productive. Um, which kind of gave me a little bit more confidence in him repeating that moving forward. But um, yeah, you got me. <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, let's go to the over under because this one's really interesting because it's set at forty eight, their exact win total from last season. And I thought about this, and I don't feel good about it. <sighs> I'm going with the under, um, what? slightly. I, see, okay, I really want to cheat and just call it a push because I really think they're going to win forty eight again. That's but, what I was going to say. I was waiting for you to go under so I could give it a push. Go on. But, I think they win 47 games. I, I think that <laughs> this team has a lot of depth. Um, my question is, can they continue and kind of build off their surprising year from last year? Um, I, again, it's not a given that any of those guys that I mentioned, like an Evans or a Bogdanovich or a Thad Young, you know, kind of regress. Um, but I think it's certainly a possibility, especially when you consider what kind of year Evans had last season. Again, I, I want to believe in Miles Turner, and I think he could bounce back, but I don't know how much he's going to take another step. Um, and then again, if, if Old Depot misses five to ten games like he did last season, this team again will I think will continue to struggle without him on the floor. Um, so for those reasons, I think they're going to be basically the same team. But do I see them being a forty-nine fifty win team, or do I see them kind of slipping to forty-seven wins when they really last season they had a point differential of a forty-six win team? So it's kind of a marginal improvement if you think about it like that. Um, so I'm going to go with this under slightly. I think they win forty-seven games. <sighs> I really wanted that push, but I'm going to go. Same as you. Um, I'm going to take that exact same one because 
I, I, I don't know. I just Because we can't go with pushes. That's cheating. <laughs> I, I mean, one, because we can't go with pushes, yes. But also, this question about Miles Turner. I have some questions about the supporting cast for the Pacers. Um, and I think all of that kind of leads me to be at least around the same. Like, the improvement there is, is lacking. I think their ceiling's a little bit lower. But, like, they... I'm not even going to go to the ceiling floor. Basically, I have questions about the supporting cast and Miles Turner. And there we go. And I can't push because Eric's rules. So we're just going to go with the under. I'm going to do the same as you, 47. I think they're going to be around that range. I think they go 46 and 49, personally. All right. Um, let's get to, I think, the most interesting team of, of this division. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks, final team of the Central Division. Their offseason was, was eventful. Um, headlined by bringing in Mike Budenholzer as head coach. Uh, and then they went out and signed Ursan Ilyasova, Brooke Lopez, Pat Connaughton, and they drafted Dante DiVincenzo, um, and they lost Jabari Parker. Last season, they had the 12th ranked offense and the 18th ranked defense, and they had the point differential of a 40-win team when they actually won 44 games. So again, another te- a lot of teams in this division kind of got pretty lucky uh, in terms <laughs> of their point differential versus their actually win-loss record. But the main storyline... It has to start with just having a coach, a real coach. Um, and what, Joe Pronti, what? <laughs> what comes with bringing in Budenholzer is a more modern offense and a more modern coaching style, for the example. I think that going from Jason Kidd slash Joe Pronti to Budenholzer is not only the biggest coaching upgrade this offseason, I think it's just straight up one of the biggest additions in general, even with player movement considered. Uh, involved in terms of who changed teams this this summer. Um, and what Budenholzer did was he went out and added some shooters to space the floor around Giannis um, because that's exactly what this team needs to, needs to do. Uh, last season, they were 25th in attempts, in three-pointers attempts per game last season, and they were 22nd in percentage. Not good. Not great, actually. Um, and you look at their first preseason game. I watched uh, basically the first half of that game, and they finished the game with 45 attempts from beyond the arc. Now, they're not going to jump from 25th in attempts per game last season all the way to, you know, top five. Um, that'd be a swing that I don't think we've ever seen, really. Um, but they could jump from 25th to maybe, like, 15th. And that kind of difference, with some shooters that can actually hit them, like an Ilya Silva, like a Lopez, like a Connaughton, can do wonders for their offense. I mean, the 12th ranked offense is, is fine, but with you have Giannis, you have Chris Middleton, you have Eric Bledsoe. You've got these pieces that can have you easily have a top 10 offense and I think that Budenholzer will be able to unlock that this season um other question marks with Budenholzer you know really be even more modern and get a lot more Giannis at the five that could be extremely intriguing extremely beneficial for them on the offensive end of the floor in terms of just having Giannis and like four shooters and a couple ball handlers around him that could be incredibly deadly and basically unstoppable offensively um and maybe if you put the right pieces around him in certain lineups like that you can get a switchable defense with Eric Bledsoe, with maybe a Tony Snell, a Chris Middleton, um, something like that. Uh, they're still missing like one more piece in that lineup. Maybe it's Malcolm Brogdon who can switch a little bit. Um, that's an intriguing lineup on both ends of the floor. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of positives with bringing in Budenholzer, obviously, especially when you go from Kidd and Prunty, who was probably the, the worst coaching situation last season, or one of the bottom three in terms of, of, of terrible coaching, um, especially for that this team that has this much talent that continued to disappoint. But one thing that's really interesting that I've, I've been hearing is this discussion about how good Budenholzer will be for their offense. And I, I do agree that he will. I just mentioned that I think that he can get them into the top 10 offensively. He just brought in all these shooters. He has them in the first preseason game taking 45 attempts from beyond the arc. Um, they're going to improve offensively. But what's really interesting is that in Budenholzer's four years with the Hawks, 
his team finished higher than 15th offensively just once. So in 16-17, we'll start. In 16-17, he was the 27th ranked offense. That team was pretty bad and kind of mediocre, and he left. Um, in 15-16, he was the 18th, or they were the 18th ranked offense. Then you obviously had their magical 60-win uh, season in 2014-2015. They finished with the 6th ranked offense. Just an incredible year. All that ball movement, all that great shooting, all that floor spacing, just kind of modern offense led them to 60 wins. And then his first season with the Hawks in 13-14, he was 15. So basically, he's had one above league average offense with the Hawks in his, in his years with Atlanta. Um, he has solid schemes, and he certainly understands the importance of floor spacing, and he's certainly a huge upgrade over Kidd and Prunty. But I don't think... He's not like you're talking about like one of the top five offensive coaches. Like he's just a better schemer on both ends of the floor and kind of understands how to play modern basketball. Um, so that's an interesting aspect of the Budenholzer discussion that I, I don't think is being talked about enough. But regardless, I'm really optimistic on what he can do to this team and this offense. And, and I like the signings that they brought in to fit the way he wants to play and to fit modern basketball around a guy like Giannis. That's just how it is. You have Giannis, you build this kind of team around him, and you play with this style, and you're going to have more success. Oh, yeah. And I think not only bringing in Budenholzer, but actually bringing in stretch bigs for him. Mm-hmm. Um, Ursani Lesova and Brooke Lopez. They got Brooke Lopez on a steal of a contract, in my opinion. One year, three million. That's kind of crazy. Um, Ursani Lesova is partially guaranteed, but bottom line is a three-year, $21 million contract. Not a big fan of that. But I get the short-term reason for signing both of those players in the fact, in the sense that they give Giannis that floor space that he needs. And I didn't even know about the 45 threes they put up, but they will put that ball up. That, that's going to be great. And that space is the floor for Giannis to really go to work. I mean, he's clearly the top offensive player. He has the chance, I think it's not even that close, to be the best off the best player in the Eastern Conference, um, depending on what you think about uh, the claw in Toronto. But um, he's made NBA all-star, NBA, NBA second team, back-to-back years earned all-star team honors in the last two seasons. He accounted for 31.5% of the Bucks' offense, according to Cleaning the Glass. 26.9 points per game has him ranked fifth. Um, he made the fourth amount of fourth most amount of field goals among his peers. He got the free throw line over eight times a game. I mean, and all of this without a consistent three-point shot. And the dude's only 23. Like, if he adds that long-range shot, look at how buff he got. Didn't notice how much muscle he put on this summer. It's not going to be fun for opponents to deal with. And with a coach like Budenhoser, who, mind you, we already talked about his offensive prowess or let's say lack thereof, but the fact that he is at least a competent head coach and an upper echelon competent head coach um, compared to the other two, although I am still high on playoff Joe Prunty, um, <laughs> compared to the other two coaches that Milwaukee had, is it, it, going to be great for him. I think a storyline for me goes to the other players because I already mentioned the two signs they just had. I think Eric Bledsoe had just a disappointing up and down season last year from not one to be up in Phoenix to his game, not one to be up in Milwaukee, but now he responds to that. Other than that is really just Malcolm Brogdon. What's up with him? Chris Middleton, you know, Ersan Lysova, like these players that are around Giannis, Tony Snell, who's still there. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm being sarcastic here, but Thon McCurr, there's so many players that have length. They have the ability to exploit mismatches. They have potential. Um, the, the problem is, how is it going to fit around Giannis? Is Mike Budenholz the man to get the best out of Milwaukee? And can they rebound the basketball? And that's a weakness I found. They average less than 40 rebounds as a team. I mean, that, that's, that's not going to work. <laughs> and, and last year, they took less than 25 threes per game and only made 35%. So there's some things that Mike Budenholzer has to fix, like, right away. But he is on the, the team that is primed with the best player in, in the conference moving forward. Yeah, and, and that's one of the key things with the Bucks is like 
star if you have a star in the NBA, you're gonna win a certain amount of games, especially if you just don't like if you don't just completely just kill the, the team around them, like maybe like the Kings and the Marcus Cousins, but Giannis is like above where Cousins ever was, and and it projects. I mean, arguably a top five player right now, um, but will certainly be you know in the next year or so. Uh, and that was you kind of hit on my other storyline is is kind of what what does the depth look like, and how does the rotation kind of play out this season? Because who gets the who gets the consistent backup minutes on the wing? Because as I mentioned, they got Pat Connaughton, solid shooter, steady presence. They got Sterling Brown, who was, was kind of quietly under the radar at a solid rookie season last year, and they drafted Dante Divincenzo. Rookies, again, very rarely contribute to winning. You know, what is the depth looking like on this roster? Because if you start Tony Snell at shooting guard, then maybe you move Malcolm Brogdon to back up point guard. Then you're looking at giving Connaughton or, or maybe Brown a, a big role. Um, you know, Chris, Chris Middleton starting at small forward doesn't really have a backup there. Um, Giannis starting at power forward, you can put Ersan Elias over there. You got Brooke Lopez. And then at the center position, you know, Again, like you said, where's Thon McCurr? Good, good pronunciation. That is the real pronunciation, everybody. Ah! Everyone says maker, but it's Thon McCurr. What is his role? Because ideally you would want, at this point in his development, to be the primary backup to Brooke Lopez at center because he's a guy who can defend the rim and kind of space the floor a little bit. Um, but again, he was so disappointing and inconsistent last season in the regular season. And then all of a sudden in the playoffs, he was really solid. I mean, especially defensively. He was just blocking every shot that came around him. Um, but, you know, the question is... Will they rely on maybe more of a veteran presence like John Henson, who, again, he's a kind of a negative asset due to his contract, but actually can still provide some solid defense and rim protection. And interestingly enough, John Henson had a positive net po- 9.2 net rating last season. So, you know, maybe Budenholzer relies on him a little bit more to win games in the regular season. But, you know, McCurr has his development has been really hit or miss. It's been really, you know, one week he's hot, or maybe like one game he's hot, one game he's cold um, on both ends of the floor. What is his role? Because not only do they have Brook Lopez obviously starting at center, but they've got these potential and should be explored small ball lineups with Giannis or Elias Sover at center, which kind of pushes McCurr out of the rotation on a given night, um, especially if he's not developing at the rate that you would want to see from him. So the, the, the depth on the wing, actually the depth overall on this roster is kind of concerning once you get past they're basically their starting lineup in like their sixth and seventh men. So if they run a short rotation that can catch up to them, ideally you would want to cut down their minutes, especially Giannis come playoff time. Um, but they don't have the depth, especially on the wing to really keep up. And maybe they look to make a move, in, you know, in the buyout market or some kind of trade in the regular season to add some kind of wing um, that can provide some defense and some, and some three point shooting to this roster, because without it, there are some concerning developments or not developments. There are some concerning aspects of this roster. Once you get past you know, gushing over Giannis and gushing over the new shooting that they've added and gushing over their new coach and Mike Budenholzer and the solid role players and Bledsoe and Middleton that they've got. Because underneath that, all of that, there are some real issues and some real glaring holes for this roster. Yeah, you, you kind of nailed it. They're, they're, everything's all fun and games right now, but the games really start to count in just under, just under two weeks. Then we'll really see what they're really about. And, and that's the thing. So, and that's, this is a prediction. Let's move with the over-under now because this is yeah. a prediction that this is a team that I'm very optimistic on, and I feel like either this team oh, is going to no, hit, no. either this team is going to hit on everyone's optimism and just be really, really good and just take another step with a more modern offense and an actual, you know, good coach, um, or all this optimism, like we just said, will, will kind of make all the analysts and everyone kind of cover up the blemishes on this roster and those blemishes over 82 games of regular season when a couple injuries strike or they get into a rut or something like that. 
those blemishes will be exposed more and more, and that will lead them to have a disappointing season. That, 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 I feel like those are the only two possibilities for the Bucks this year. Yeah. And despite that, <laughs> I'm going to stick with the optimism. And their they're over-under is 47.5, and, and I'm going to go on the over. Um, and I think, again, it's barely. I, I really think that they can get the four seed with this with this new coach, or this new this new or more more floor spacing, I should say, and better coaching. That's the better way of phrasing it. Um, I really think that they have a star player. You you win with stars. They've got enough of a supporting cast around him in a Bledsoe, in a Middleton. Um, I like the bigs that they've added now. Um, I think that that the, all those combinations, if they stay healthy in the East, can get them the four seed. And yet, at the same time, I don't feel good about this prediction. I could easily see them being the under because last season they were basically a 40-win team. They had the point differential of a 40-win team. And they've got those glaring holes in terms of depth, especially on the wing and in the backcourt. So you look at that, and and the other fact is that while this isn't a thing that will hold them back this season, this is something I just want to touch on pretty quickly, is that this team has a lot of players that would make uh, would be really useful in a switch everything defense, or maybe a switch, you know, mostly everything defense. And yet, <laughs> the best they can. And yet, they're not gonna they're they're not gonna do that when Brook Lopez is on the floor. They're not gonna do that when Henson's on the floor. They're not gonna do that probably when Illy Sowers on the floor. Like they brought in bigs to help them offensively, and yet defensively is probably preventing them from playing their best potential style of defense. Now, hopefully. And they're not going to do it. They're not going to do that stupid Jason Kidd, you know, pressing scheme that really just caused them to give up all, all, every single corner three imaginable to every offense in the world. Uh, I think I would have been able to get five open corner threes per game if I played against oh, the Milwaukee no. Bucks last season. Um, <laughs> I mean, they let me. I have to look this up just to just to see. I'm right here because they, from my recollection, they were one of the worst teams. Yeah, here it is. They allowed opponents to shoot 41.2% on corner threes, which ranked 25th in the league last season. They were also 16th in the league in terms of frequency of, of teams attempting corner threes. So not great. Um, but they're not going to – they're going to do a more – at least a more traditional defensive scheme when their normal rotational players are on the floor. And then, like I said, moving Giannis to center – um, maybe even when, when it occurs on the floor, maybe then they look to do some switching because that, I think, will unlock them a little bit more defensively and get them up from where they were in 18th last year. So I know I'm rambling. I'm taking the over. I don't feel good about it. I think this team could be 50 wins. I think this team could be 44 wins. So, see, what's funny is when you said, oh, no, I thought you were saying that because you were taking the under. I was like, oh, you have little faith in Giannis. <laughs> I'm actually going to take the over. I'm a little more optimistic than you are just because I think that no matter – you know, the lack of depth is concerning. You've already mentioned a couple of other things that I'm like, wow, I didn't think about that, that are that are cause for pause. However, I do have a lot of faith in Budenhoser. I do have a lot of faith in a massive improvement from Giannis in his age uh, 23, age 24 season coming up. Um, I think that will be enough for them to clearly pass the over. Whether or not they get very far or need another year to kind of work out some kinks, um, fill out that, that – um, that rotation, that's that's all up in the air. It's all debatable. But I think there's enough internal development in these players to at least get them over that. And this is just purely almost on the strength of Giannis. Um, Thon McCurr, I still have some hope for, although he kind of had a down year for me and I guess for anyone else who really had looks at him. Malcolm Brogdon, we already knew with his age that he was kind of what he was as far as a limited player. Um, but he has potential. Um, Chris Middleton is a solid, serviceable player. He's a really good player. So I, I think that the talent around them is enough to clear – the the, the the over pretty easily. After that, I'm not sure. But I'm not talking long-term. I'm just talking about this year. You know what I mean? I agree. And I am taking the over. I don't feel as good about it as you do. But I do think, like, you, I just think that 
I agree that the, the aspects of their roster and their situation that you brought up, you know, will most likely be able to cover up the holes that are on this roster at, at this point. Unless they, again, if they make a move in the offseason that could, you know, add another wing to this team, man, I'd, I'd feel really good about them winning 50 games. But we can't obviously predict on that happening. So I'm still taking the over. I'm still pretty optimistic. I think they'll be really a lot more enjoyable to watch with a more modern offense and some actual coaching and some schemes and some plays. I mean, even... Even in their first preseason game, I think there were like three or four clips that made the rounds on Twitter of just actual ball movement and creating open three-pointers early in the shot clock. And, you know, even there was Giannis taking that um, dribble pull-up three-pointer switch. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not going to bank on that happening. But even that that ball movement, just being able to create open shots, especially early in the shot clock, maybe running a little bit more in transition, all those aspects that come with Budenholzer and a, a good coach and a more modern offense will, I think, again, like you said, be able to cover up the small but potentially noticeable and glaring holes in this roster. So I- I'll stick with the over as well. All right, there we are. Yeah, I was going to say, that was in our group chat. I did see that clip. That was pretty nice. You, you see, it's already making an impact. We're going to be fine. <laughs> exactly. All right, that will wrap up the Central Division. That'll wrap up our Eastern Conference. We, we hit on all three divisions. If you've missed any of the episodes, you can uh, check them out on our, on our Blog Talk radio page. Um, of course, if you're following us on Twitter... You'll get all the updates for our next episode, which will be our final division preview on the Pacific Division um, sometime, oh, in, yeah. sometime in the next week. We've got basically, what is it, 10 days, I think, until bas- until regular season starts. Um, so get we'll be finishing up the division previews. Follow us on Twitter for all of that. Um, follow us on Twitter for our new website, which will be coming soon for the 94. Of course, check out our rebranding, our new look, um, and be tuned. stay tuned for all of that. Of course, Corbin, you can let everyone know where they can follow you. Uh, at Corbin Ford NBA. That's where I'll be at, at 94. Already some new stuff happening. I'll start a conversation. The season's coming up. We got a lot to do, y'all. All right, guys. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, enjoy uh, the remaining preseason games if you guys can enjoy those. They're kind of they're kind of hard to watch, to be honest here. Um, and stay, <laughs> stay tuned for the uh, next and final division preview episode coming soon. Take care. All right, y'all.